What's up, heroes? I could not wait for this interview. Today, we've got Andrew Sinclair, better known as Approaching Nirvana. Andrew is a full-time musician supported by his amazing online community. In the last decade, he's released 17 albums, including over 300 songs. He has over 130 million Spotify streams alone, and if you count all platforms, his catalog has over 300 million streams, all independent and without a label. Andrew's catalog and his music is so epic, I had to do a double episode. So I hope you enjoy this full interview all in one recording. During the interview, Andrew talks about isolated frequencies and why this may be his last big album, how he achieved his early success on YouTube, and his secrets for being such a prolific musician. But the goal in structure is really to maximize the amount of time you can get into flow state, which is where most of your really good stuff comes from. But first, cue the intro music. Andrew, welcome to the Producer Life Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. I have really been looking forward to this interview. You you are an amazing producer, and you've got an absolutely epic catalog of music with over <laughs> 240 tracks on uh, Spotify and an amazing range of music from EDM to dubstep to progressive house. So th- I think this is going to be an awesome interview, and I'm really excited to have you here. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you very much for the kind words. Yeah, it's 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 been a while, and... Uh, I, I I guess I'm I, I'm really fortunate to be in this position because I've been doing this uh, professionally almost for a decade. And it's really I have the thanks of my fans and the support that they give me over the years. And man, it feels like I've grown up together with some of them. So it's been really cool. That is phenomenal. And I, I am definitely wanting to talk about sort of the fan base that you've built and how you've done that. Um, you mentioned it's been a while. I When I was looking back through interviews, frequently when I do these podcasts, I go back and I listen to interviews from from years past and and like the most recent one i could find was 2014 um (laughs) what's uh what's been going on since then yeah i mean to be totally honest i don't really do too many interviews i'm mostly sort of head down focused and um making sure i get stuff out and working in the studio um yeah i i mean a lot's happened since 2014 uh we just finished 2020 so certainly that was a ridiculous year but um Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've I've sort of gone through some ups and downs and obviously the industry's been changing both in the mainstream area with like proper uh shows and producers and like wh- that's what I call the mainstream side of the industry just because I feel like I kind of straddled that as well as like YouTube and sort of indie artists and man, I think that both sides of that industry have really changed over the last six years. And I've had to adapt a little bit. Um, and and also, you know, from a quality standpoint, that's been my big focus over the last five years is really upping my my quality from a personal standpoint in my music. Okay. You, you mentioned you are straddling sort of the mainstream and the indie movements. And I, I certainly see that you've got some collaborations with some, you know, mainstream artists. And at the same time, you, you know, you've released stuff on NCS, you are doing a lot of independent releases. What are your aspirations? Are you headed one direction or the other? Uh, I guess, I mean, in that question is a good one. And I think it makes me think of the reason that I got into it is, is you know, when I was in college, um, you know, going through an engineering degree. Um, I was pretty okay at that, 
good, I guess some people would say, but like, I did not like it. And so I just wanted to make a living doing what I love. I feel like that goal is still true. Um, and I think that that has sort of morphed over time to be, I just want to write music for myself and for my fans. And I feel like that is where that stems from and why I sort of straddle the two industries because I like a lot of mainstream music. Um, and I don't say mainstream from a, like a, a genre standpoint, just like stuff that's released on labels and in the quote unquote industry. And then I like a lot of independent artists and a lot of the YouTube uh, communities that are built um, organically. And I feel like that's the key to my success over the years. But I'm happy to do a lot more mainstream oriented or label oriented tracks, if that's what makes sense. I think this focus is mainly on quality as well moving forward. And I'd like to work with as many people that, um, you know, see the same thing that I do in music and connecting people and especially, you know, in recent times with all the uh, world stuff going on. But yeah, I think that's been my goal. And I think moving forward, I'm open to anything. I'm a little bit honed on some of the types of genres that I'm writing a little bit more than I have been in years past because I've been able to sort of freely write, which again, is something that I'm super fortunate for. Um, but at the same time, that does bring challenges because you're brand has to be this overarching, a little bit more generic thing that can sort of pivot and do all these different things. And I think having a more focused sound does lend a little bit more to a more cohesive brand. And so that's something that I am looking at and I am interested in. It's interesting to me that you bring up the cohesive brand because I'm looking at your your most recent release, which I definitely want to talk about, Isolated Frequencies from last year. Mm -hmm. And this, this album is tagged with chill drum and bass, dubstep, EDM, electronic, future bass, progressive house, trance, and, and then Denver, um, which is, yep. of course, a location, not a genre. But so how do you feel like your fans have responded to this incredibly diverse body of work that you have? Yeah, I do. I do think that the general fan base is a little bit more receptive to specific genres because they know what to expect. Um, if you look on Spotify, that's really what does well, um, not only for me, but just generally speaking, like if you've built an audience on a specific sound, genre, or just style, then they want more of that. But at the same, I mean, it's like any entertainment industry, they want more of it, but they also want you to, you know, iterate on it and without going back and changing what you did, which is very hard to do in any uh, form of media. But um, I, I like to think that from my perspective, you are able to keep it fresh if you can do more creatively in different areas. Sometimes that means that you break off into different aliases. You said a lot of uh, bigger producers doing that, um, mm -hmm. especially you know in the last year because they've had time to do that. Uh, and then you also see, um, I think just like my hardcore fan base, which I think is what you want to aim to build over a long term. They enjoy a lot of the different genres because it's not just the same stuff outputted. And especially like I try to output at least once a month um, and and vary it a little bit, but still keep my focus is to be specific and um, tailored towards what I'll use air quotes for this an approaching Nirvana sound would be. And I'm still working on that. I know. I mean, maybe we'll talk about that a little later, but I, I think that like you know, as a producer or an artist, you're trying to find whatever your sound is. And that's something that doesn't happen overnight. That happens over your entire career. And 20, 30 years might be what it takes. Some people find it really quickly and then just like iterate on that. But I think it's a personal journey. And I think that my hardcore fan base sort of loves that I've been, um, you know, touching on a lot of the different genres. 
But I would say that, you know, you have to sort of taper that or temper your expectations with that and from a production standpoint and make sure that you're giving people what they signed up for. Like when they follow you, they signed up for whatever they followed you for. And so if you ignore that, then you're going to lose them at some point. So I do think it's sort of a balancing act. Yeah, you've t- certainly taken your listeners on on quite a journey. My jaw dropped when I looked at the number of tracks you had on Spotify, you know, 240 tracks. So I'm, I'm sitting over here counting on my fingers going, man, that's an average of two tracks a month for the last 10 years. <laughs> oh, my you know, gosh, really? Yeah. Oh, how, boy. how do you do that? I, you know, I, I know lots of producers that struggle to release quarterly, sure. maybe monthly. How do you keep up that production pace? Wow. I've never done the math on that. That's real. That's yeah. Uh, when you put it like that, it's a little ridiculous. I, I do think um, the main thing when you're doing anything that involves art um, is to make sure that you're always creating. So uh, one of the things that I found early and it's funny that you mentioned that number because in 2000, I think 11 before lapse in time, which is sort of the first EDM release that I had, mm-hmm. I, uh, I basically wiped the slate clean and I think I basically removed two, three, maybe four or five albums worth. It was well over 150 songs, um, wow. just from a quality standpoint, they were cool. Um, and I'd gotten a fair amount of views on a few of them, but I just felt like uh, a fresh start was what approach Nevada needed at that time. It was also more in a pop direction, so it didn't make sense. But like, I think the only place people can find those is like, <laughs> in a, uh, I think the, a legacy package or something I put together for one of my Kickstarters in 2015. And I think that's available on Bandcamp or something. But the point remains that just I, I, the reason I mentioned that is just to give you an insight over it's actually more. Um, and there's also, as any producer has, I have a ton of projects that I haven't released. And, um, I just feel like you always need to be in the studio creating like, and the more you create, the more that you can be a little choosy with what you release and then your quality overall, especially from the outside looking in goes up. And I feel like that's been sort of my moniker. If I look back now, I don't think that 50% of the stuff that's actually released reaches that bar of quality. Um, that I'm setting for myself now, or probably even more, to be honest. And you see a lot of producers do that. I feel like Porter Robinson did that at some point once he moved on into like his world stuff. But like, I, I just, you always have to create and every piece of music is a little piece of you at that time. And I feel like you have to learn to be okay with that and just move forward with releasing and understand that it's part of the journey. And I feel like that's been my outlook. And I feel like that's pretty much why I've released so consistently over the years. Can you walk me through a day in the studio and kind of the life cycle of a project? Uh, sure. Uh, so I think that, all right, I, I should preface this by the fact that um, one of my biggest uh, rules as I've been doing this is to keep a consistent structure. I feel like all the stuff that we're talking about and releasing consistently and working in different projects and, and being, you know, creatively prolific, if you will, is trying to keep a structure. And that sounds a little bit counter to, you know, being creative because you want to be free and have the ideas flowing. But the goal in structure is really to maximize the amount of time you can get into flow state, which is where most of your really good stuff comes from. And that's that's, you know, when you're in the studio, that, those are the sessions where everything just spills out. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And that's not always going to happen. So it's going to be hard sometimes to get in the studio. So that's what I want to preface that. And I feel like that's my goal is to make sure that's consistent. So I do sort of a nine to five. It varies a little bit. I do have a little bit of flexibility, but my first session is usually a, a creative session for about two hours where I write new ideas. Then I go through and do admin stuff for about an hour or two, emails, all that kind of stuff. Um, and after that, I will revisit and probably do, uh, depending on the day, a more focused and oriented um, hour-long session, uh, usually targeted towards like sound design or uh, you know building out, say, a drum loop that I throw into like my personal production library, um, something like that. And then after that, you know, take a break for lunch, and then I pretty much have two. Um, what I like to call flex sessions um, with breaks in between mm-hmm. uh, for the rest of the day that it's like, all right, look at what to do list. What are the projects there and schedule a session and also make sure to pick a goal for that session. If you're picking a project that's a work in progress that you've already greenlit for release or for finishing at the very least, then what are you doing on it? Are you going through and taking it from the idea stage to uh, a full arrangement? Are you going to, you know, sit there and try to put it in a different genre because you had an idea about, say, the musical idea that would work better in a different genre. Um, you know, stuff like that. That's like, I feel like when you sit down and you're a little bit more you're like, oh, I'm just going to work on this project. I feel like a lot of times I end up wasting time in that situation. So I've tried, you know, more in more recent years to get more specific about what the goal of each session in those sessions are, because mm-hmm. that's how you finish projects. Um, And yeah, in terms of the, I guess the process, or I guess start to finish on a project, usually it's, it starts with those idea sessions and I actually stream some of them to, uh, over on Twitch sometimes. And, you know, it's, it's really there just to create a, a well-rounded idea. It doesn't have to be great. doesn't have to be finished, but like, you know, something where you can see a song come out of that. And after that, I sort of go through, and if I if I feel like it has promise, then I go through those other sessions and move into basically doing like you know a more serious sound design session and a more serious um, effects session. Uh, and uh, I'm trying to think of like what the order is. It changes on the songs to songs, but I do feel like those sessions are really what takes it from an idea to an actual song, and then from there you get into like the little like literal production stuff of like, okay, this sounds good, but I need this type of sound. Let's go sound design that. Okay. That sounds good. Um, Maybe this needs this type of drop. Let's sit here and work on the drop and like, you know, make sure the kick works with the key of the song and the side chains all work together and yada, yada, yada. Then after that, it's basically mixing and mastering. Um, And then I like to put a little bit of space after I do a first master and then come back and sort of do reference mastering and um, all that kind of stuff. Okay. That's a lot. Hopefully that answers your question. Absolutely. That's, that's good. It sounds like a big part of it is chunking your time and mm-hmm. allocating time specifically to specific processes. Um, how many tracks are you usually actively working on at once? Is it, do you do it sequentially or do you usually have a couple going at a time so you can set one aside for a few days and sort of let it percolate and that sort of thing? Yeah, I don't, I guess I don't have a specific um, exact process to this, but I would say I have, I'm working on anywhere from two to five tracks at a time. Um, But, you know, I think that that varies. I think that's general. Like if I had to pick a general month, that's probably what it looks like. Um, And there's also side projects and other things that come in. 
<clears throat> so it's like stuff that, you know, I'll do from a producer standpoint that's not necessarily specifically approaching Nirvana. Um, and that could be admin stuff that could be, uh, you know, and I, when I say admin stuff, not like emails, like I'm talking about uh, saving patches from previous songs to build out that library, um, you know, working on getting uh, templates together for all the different genres. I think that that's something that is a little unique to what I do is I write in all these genres. So you need templates to sort of iterate quickly um, instead of just one template. Uh, if you write, say, just future base. Um, yeah, I think that that's probably maybe two to five. Yeah. Okay. With your templates, I know I've, I've heard that is a good strategy from a bunch of other producers. What mm. can you describe in general? What goes into your templates? Do you have select sounds that you like, plugins for each genre, mastering chains? What what do your templates kind of look like? And, and you're in Pro Tools, right? Oh, I'm actually in Logic. Basically, uh, I have a very basic template that I think it's very important to have like, I mean, I guess this comes with depending on what software you're using, but like key commands and uh, what in Logic is called uh, window sets, I think. Um, so I have like a two screen setup, but I have basically my one to nine is all set up on like, you know, arrange on this side, mixing on this side, arrange on this side, piano roll on that side, stuff like that. Uh, so I have like a really basic setup that's almost blank with like a like an instrument and an audio. That's where I start if I'm like starting fresh. Um, and then I have sort of what I like to call like uh, song shells. Um, and those are basically where I take previous songs and uh sort of build them out into what the shell of the song was and that's usually like the percussion um and the effects and i sort of break that out into keyed effects i.e like stuff that's in the key of the song and um non-tonal effects so atonal stuff so like uh you know us a, a dubstep preset or template might have you know all of the whooshes and um you know atmospheric effects and basically the sort of the sound bed of what uh, sets a song in there um, and it varies from time to time because obviously if you do that a little too much then you end up writing sort of the same song but mm -hmm. a little different so you got to be careful but I would say that from a general standpoint the genre specific templates have uh, basically a lot of the stuff that I personally um, don't work on first and because I, I, I start with like chords and melodies that's where I come from and having to sit there and like <laughs> sample surf and select a kick that sounds good that I, what is what I'm looking for is really what takes me out of the creative process um, and I'd like to do that in a different session and come back and you know rehash if I green light the idea so I try to get all that stuff out of the way and my recommendation from a top-down standpoint of looking at templates is think about what gets in your way in the creative process and have that stuff somewhat um, taken care of before you write and that's the way a template should work for you. And that's what I've tried to do for myself. So um, yeah, I think there's also other specific templates. I have orchestral templates that are basically just, because I, I write cinematic stuff too, but don't really mm -hmm. release it. <laughs> um, and, but those templates are, are much larger in terms of like the amount of instruments um, that are in there. And yes, that, that will sort of have, you know, a lot of contact libraries or some East-West stuff. And basically so that I can load it up and then just get going with an idea. I think that's that's the important thing for a template. Okay, great. You, We've sort of talked in general about your production flow. I, I want to go back to Isolated Frequencies and talk about that album, which when one word comes to mind for me about approaching Nirvana, it is epic. Everything seems to be 
big and powerful and and even this this album has 22 tracks which to me is just huge i, I think most albums probably average a dozen tracks or so talk to me about that album and and uh some of the collaborations that you did on it sure <laughs> i guess i'll first touch on the amount of tracks some of my most successful albums in the past have been these really really large compilation albums and the reason that is is because one i felt like in 20 i started doing this around 2013 2014 i felt like giving the fans a value proposition that they can't refuse in terms of the number of tracks on an album was a good thing um mm -hmm. and then on a networking side it was something that if i released an album with 22 tracks at the time i was reaching out to a lot of um youtubers and people on live streaming i don't even know if twitch was a thing at that point but like basically a lot of other creators in other industries that had a need for music because of copyright and um it didn't work like it does today back in the day you could get a strike on your channel if you used i don't know a copyrighted song and so if you got three strikes your channel was gone and so if you want to make money on youtube you had to figure it out that was just a problem that presented itself. So in reaching out to them, I felt like that was also a value proposition. If I give, you know, those content creators 22 songs, they can be a little bit versatile in what they use. And then I could write also a little bit um, different in terms of genre. And then it basically it's a situation where everybody wins. So like, you know, if you go to listen to an album, you're like, wow, that's 20 tracks or plus, I think I've had some that are like 23 or 24. But like, yeah, I, I feel like that was what I was doing at the time. Now, keep in mind, at that point, um, iTunes was really the big uh, thing in terms of the music industry. And this was as Spotify was still in its infancy. Albums were still something that supported. And unfortunately, that's not the way the industry is today. But the, the reason I'm explaining this is because this album is an homage to my fans. This is basically the last big collabor or excuse me, the big compilation album that I'm doing because Spotify really doesn't support these large albums. A lot of tracks get buried. You see that on on this album, literally, and you see it on bigger artists as well. And unless you have a massive marketing budget, you can't individually promote each track. And so moving forward, I'm definitely going to be focusing on the smaller ones. But this was a sort of an homage to the way I used to re uh, release back in the day, um, 2013-14, most likely not even once, and Animals, those two albums. And I, I wanted to sort of give back to my fans just because I think this is going to be from a quality standpoint and from a brand standpoint, a, a bit of a turning point for me. I'm, I'm a lot more focused on releasing singles now, being more specific about quality. So um, that's why that's so long. And I wanted to do that. It's basically a story of the last two years for me. And obviously the title's a bit of an homage to the last year. But yeah, I mean, this whole album is about the people that have supported me to get this far. And I think that that was very important for me. Um, and from a stylistic standpoint, or I guess an emotional standpoint, you mentioned the word epic. And that's something that I've always tried to put into my compositions. It's something that when I think about uh, what Approach to Nirvana like, means to me or what my musical journey is, is it is literally the process of, of, of going on a journey and i feel like that's what i try to do with each song that's what i try to do with each uh album and a lot of that ends up being you know sort of either that epic feel whether that's literally epic because there are some of the songs in there that i really pushed for um to be that type of like really big sound and 
um, you know, intense, but like energetic stuff. But I also feel like it needs to be balanced out a little bit by like the intro and outro songs are really laid back and they sort of build up to that. Um, And that's like it's all about telling a story with music. Like I think releasing tracks is fine. You know, if you if you, um, you know, just release songs because they sound cool, that's great. But I feel like you can connect to more people if you have an emotional story behind each song. Um, And yeah, like in terms of collaborations, uh, I I really think working with other people that share your views and commitment to quality and, you know, telling a story um, is important. And I feel like that usually ends up in making a better song and a better piece of art, depending or no matter what industry you're in. And um, the people that I worked with on this album are Sounder and Alex Holmes. And uh, Sounder is awesome. She's on the second track. Uh, She's actually uh, based in Denver as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, she just has a great voice, and we wanted to create something that was a little bit—I don't—I hate to call it beachy, but that's kind of the best word to say it. But sort of a throwback to the like the old school, you know, 2015 style progressive house anthems that were all over festivals. Um, and I—I I feel like that also came at a time when everybody's striving to want to go do those things, and so that was really fun to work with her, and she sort of put a really nice um i guess punctuation to the song in terms of like she really filled out what was missing and i think that that's important when you look for collaborators and she did an amazing job and she has a really great voice would recommend please check her out um and then the other uh two tracks that are vocals are uh with alex holmes well actually there's three more but i sang on the other one so uh for alex holmes she is based in london and she has a lot of work on um, like traditionally released uh, label tracks, uh, including, I believe, Armada and Universal and a few others. Um, but she's also amazing. Uh, I worked with her on What If, which was great. That's sort of about, you know, your hesitancies, worries and excitements uh, at the beginning of a relationship. And I think that's a really cool song because you can kind of view it as both ways of being excited about it or being scared about it. And, um, you know, I'll leave it up to the listener in terms of what they want to uh, pull from that. But that was a really fun known to work on. She just, she just nails it with quality as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then unleash me was great too. Uh, that's just, uh, that was sort of my stab at uh, future base. And it was really, really fun to write that together with her. So, yeah. And, and you've worked with her before you did uh, darkness comes a while back, kind of a drum step track, right? Yeah. Yeah. As it from a branding perspective, a little bit, confusing i know but yeah it's actually a really intense drum and bass track and it like uh so that one was released with uh ncs and um yeah i just like i don't know man i was working with like i don't know like neuro basses at the time and just experimenting and built it out into a drum bass song just for fun and then i showed it to some of my fans they really liked it and so uh, uh it was one of the songs i have originally showed to alex holmes when i first met her and she liked it and she also liked the fact that it wasn't normally what she wrote because a lot of her stuff is like trance and progressive house um and yeah she just killed it i really really like that song yeah me too it now you're in denver she's in london so how when you say met was this a virtual meeting or did you guys actually run across each other how did that meeting occur sure so i originally met her on a site called vocalizer i think it's kind of like I think there's a couple of those types of sites, basically like Fiverr, but for vocalists. 
Mm-hmm. And um, I think another one sound better. Uh, if you guys need yeah. vocals, like there's tons of amazing vocalists on there of all styles. Um, and so I definitely recommend reaching out on there. But uh, I reached out for originally for like a side project I was working on. And then uh, we ended up working on. Um, oh, gosh, it was the instrumental was Sundown. Uh, for the life of me, I can't remember the name of the song. I'm so sorry. But uh, <laughs> we, we end up working on something that like I had already written vocals for. And it was she just like killed it on the quality front. And so I was like, hey, do you want to work on some original stuff? And she was totally on board. Uh, we worked on a couple of those tracks. And then I was actually in, I think that was in 2017. And then in 2018, or maybe it was at the end of 2017 that I went uh, and lived in London for a month. Um, and then did a little bit of a stint. I did like a meet meetup in um, London with my fans and sort of a meetup in uh, Amsterdam with my fans. And uh, when I was in London, I got the chance to meet her. Um, and so we had, I think we had like, a coffee or something and just chatted about the industry and just started a, a what's been a really awesome long-standing work relationship and she's she's great that's that's awesome i i actually am releasing a interview with uh sandra bullet who's the vocalist that i hired on fiverr uh, about three or four years ago she's portuguese and almost had a chance to have a coffee with her when I was in Portugal two years ago and and just barely missed it. But I'm kind of hearing parallels there in, in your story and, and my own. So that's neat. I, I've enjoyed that aspect of the music business, being able to meet and work with a really diverse, creative lot of people. Yeah, for sure. Talking about sort of diversity, um, the first place I think I came across your work was with your Avengers remix. I think I was just on Google searching for Avengers remix because this was shortly after maybe Age of Ultron came out or something. And, you know, I was just like, man, that soundtrack is epic. I wonder if anybody's ever <laughs> remixed it. And yours was right there, number one on Google. And it, I still absolutely love your take on the um, theme song there. And then I started going through your tracks on YouTube and you've got all sorts of amazing geeky remixes from Harry <laughs> Potter to Mandalorian to, you know, it's, it's just a, a geek's wet dream. If you'll excuse the expression, uh, it is, it sure. is awesome. So, uh, but I was curious as I'm looking at these, um, you know, like some of them you've actually released on Bandcamp. you know, your, your Mandalorian, for example, how does the licensing work for that? Right. So I think in terms of licensing and copyright, first and foremost on YouTube, it's maybe a recent thing where you can maybe last two or three years where they've moved from DMCA and content ID to having sort of bigger copyright holders be open to sharing. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a big thing. That's really what greenlit me to do a lot, a lot of like the movie stuff, because Man, uh, you know, you got to be a little careful with all that stuff. Um, you know, I think a lot of video games are kind of just like, whoa, cool, like, and that's it. And they're just like happy it exists. Um, whereas, you know, sort of the movie industry is pretty well established compared to the game industry. So they kind of see copyright a little differently. But mm-hmm. I think it's coming around. I think that's the way it works on YouTube. So if you guys want to do remixes on YouTube, you can uh, opt to share it. And that's sort of how I've done that on YouTube. From a Bandcamp perspective, uh, first and foremost, all of those are free to download. Um, and there, yeah, there is an option if, if people want to basically donate. But the other, the flip side to that is uh, there's a lot of distributors that work uh, on cover licenses because technically that's my performance, a cover okay. of uh, you know a soundtrack song. And so um, 
you know, you can work with. So I, I work with DistroKid and they've been great for what I need. And they sort of can do that on the back end. Um, I'm wow. okay. working on potentially looking to get them up to Spotify, but we'll see. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I, I was aware of websites like Easy Song Licensing, mm -hmm. you know, for that sort of thing. I, I was not aware that DistroKid will actually handle that for their artists. Is there an additional cost to that or how did, how does that work? Uh, I'm actually not sure. It's something that's basically on my agenda to look at this year because I do feel like, you know, specifically for me, the Avengers remix has a lot of uh, views on it. So I'm kind of missing out, not having it on Spotify, but yeah, you know, I, I do think that it's, it's like, I'm an independent artist and I just like making music, but at the same time, like I like doing stuff with things that I like if that makes sense. And the Avengers theme was one of those as well as the, all the other remixes. That being said, I want to make sure everybody is getting rewarded for, you know, what they have done in the project that goes for my approach for vocalists, but in this, um, or collaborators or whatever, but then this specific thing, you know, uh, I think it's Al Alvin Silvestri, I, Silvestrini. I don't know if that's a correct pronunciation, <laughs> but, sure. um, you know, he wrote the original theme, so he should absolutely, like for each sale or view, he could, he should get credited and paid for that. Like that's the way the industry should work. So, you know, you want to be pretty specific about that. Um, I don't think specifically DistroKid charges for that, but maybe I can't really give you a solid answer on that. Yeah. One. Yeah. I, I have really liked uh, YouTube's model where they allow copyright holders to monetize. So, you know, any advertising that happens on your channel, and obviously you've got a huge YouTube channel with over 300,000 subscribers, they would receive the money for that specific video, as opposed to like Twitch's or Facebook's approach, where if you play somebody else's track, then it just gets muted, you know, and it spoils everybody's experience and nobody right. gets paid. Yeah, I would agree. Um, and the funny thing is, <laughs> YouTube wasn't always the good guy. Like it's, it's a pretty good system now. Um, but I, man, I remember when uh, if someone basically claimed your video, they could get all the ad revenue, even if it was a false claim. And they've since fixed a lot of that and, and stuff. But I think that's probably because YouTube got sued 10 years ago <laughs> as a way of getting people's attention. Yep. I've, I've been, uh, live streaming on YouTube, um, a lot in 2020 and, uh, you know, was really amazed at how accurately their content ID system picked up other people's tracks that I was playing. And, you know, I felt good about that. It's pretty scary though. <laughs> Yeah, it is. Uh, that that's true. The the AI in general. Um, I've been using uh, sort of on a related topic. I've been using Google Photos for a long time, and uh, oh, I've sure. got a Prius. And I was searching for. I've, I've had a couple of Priuses over the years, and I was searching for Prius in my photos. And Google Photos is able to not only identify cars but even makes of cars, um, which was. <laughs> you know, fascinating, useful, and terrifying all at once. Yeah. yeah it's, <laughs> so. it's the AI driven technology is really impressive. I think content ID is one of those things that if it's used for good, I'm really excited about it, but it, it does scare me because, um, you know, there, I, it's one of the big reasons I don't use as, as many, uh, sample packs these days that have like, uh, vocals in them, because it, even if you're just using it, um, say for a phrase in one of your songs, sometimes content ID can pick that up if it was copyrighted with like um, a label song. So it's one of those things where like, there's all this gray area that exists, but, but I do agree with you. It is really cool. And, and I want to make sure that, you know, if you're using content on your streams and on your videos that the artists get rewarded for that.
Yeah. And talking about samples, I, I am hesitant for similar reasons to take sample packs from, you know, just anybody. I, I, I tend to go to uh, Loop Cloud. I tend to go to Cymatics, you know, companies that I, I trust because I worry about somebody accidentally having a sample that isn't cleared and then me thinking it is and winding up with, you know, some sort of legal action there. Right. I, th- I think it's it's one of those things where you just have to know your industry. And over the time, as you get experiences, take other producers sort of takes on it and ideas of like what is reputable and also do your research. Um, and also when you download a sample pack, uh, as, as you basically alluded to, uh, make sure there's like a license in there because that would cover you in the event that for some reason there isn't something cleared in there. Um, if they have something that says these are all cleared, then you're good then it just goes on to them whether or not they cleared it. So it's it's one of the sides of the industries that's not, you know, super fun. Everybody likes like making music, releasing music and listening to music. But like you got to be a little bit specific about copyright and licensing because it's a serious thing. And, you know, long term, I think it's it's how you get paid. Yeah. One of the, one of the other interesting things that I was researching for this podcast is that you clearly spend a phenomenal amount of time in the studio and you've released a lot of music, but it doesn't look like you've spent a lot of time performing. And I was curious, do you, was that a deliberate decision or is that just, you prefer to spend your time in the studio or? Sure. I think that's a fair question. Um, I think it's a bit of both. Um, it's funny you, you asked that question because uh, at, at this time last year, I was like, you know what? One of my goals for 2020 is I really want to get, more into the touring side of the industry and investigate it and see if I can make that work. Obviously not the best (laughs) year for that. Um, And yeah, I'd still like to, but I think, you know, given the setup that I have, I'm fortunate, uh, you know, in this time to be still making music and having people listening to it. So I'm certainly thankful for that. But at the same time, like touring's really, really fun. Um, And I have done a few, Uh, most of my, uh, events usually are at conventions, corporate events, or even smaller festivals, um, stuff that like pays you money to go places because touring can be really, really rough. Um, it can be very profitable if you get on the right tour or if you have the right um, contacts. But I, I do feel like, you know, I, I do talk to a lot of my friends in the industry and they, it, it, it's fun, but it can be very stressful. It can be, you know, you're in one city one night and you in one city the next night. And um, while that's fun for the first week or month, if you're doing that for six months, that's really, really draining. Um, Mm -hmm. And it also means how do you write music at the same time and keep up the other side of your career? So Mm -hmm. I've sort of looked at that as like, well, I'm kind of like riding a river essentially. Like if it took me to touring, I would do a lot more because I've done shows and it's very fun. Um, And it's just like the energy it shows. I do live streams every week, which replicates a little bit of that online, but like, Mm -hmm. I don't, it's not the same thing. And, um, you know, being at a show, you don't get the adrenaline on a stream, like a little bit. Sure. When you're first doing it, but like, I've been doing live streams for eight years. So it's like, I, I don't necessarily avoid touring, but I don't think that right now it makes sense. I think the events that make sense for an independent artist like me, especially where I come from on YouTube and that type of atmosphere, or I guess type of audience, um, is doing stuff like meetups. Um, Sometimes those meetups include performances and just like, it's more of us just hanging out, um, a, a much like scaled down version of a normal performance. But it's more about, you know, if you think about touring, 
Um, it can be a tool that can definitely pay your bills for a lot of producers. Um, and I know a lot of producers that make most of their money touring, you know, outside of this past year. And that's great. Um, and again, outside of this past year, that can be a great business plan. But I think that the smartest thing to do is to make sure you have your feet in both um, sides and make sure that you diversify your business a little bit so that, you know, if people aren't listening to music anymore, I can still tour. And that's something that I'm looking at moving forward. Okay. You mentioned meetups with fans. So what does that look like? Is that just, hey, I'm, you know, I'm going to be in this city at this time, let's get together and hang out? Or is it, you know, you kind of sell tickets to this private intimate event where you're going to put on a little performance and then hang out with them? Or what does that look like? Right. So <laughs> that's a good question. I think that in the past, I haven't done a meetup since about 2017, 2018, just because um, you know, it usually involves me traveling somewhere because most of my fan base is either on New York, LA, or I think Europe, although it is spreading out. There's a fair amount uh, that are in Asia now, which is really, really cool. But mm -hmm. anyways, uh, the, the meetups I've done in the past haven't been paid. I feel like there's enough things that I'm monetizing online that, you know, unless I'm doing a really structured performance, I don't really want to sell tickets to it. So okay. I've thought about it. I've thought about like, figuring out how to do a show like that but as soon as you get into that area that's that's the areas that are covered by like touring agents and event managers and like what do i my question has always been like if you're doing it all yourself you have to do all the booking all the you know marketing and all of the selling yourself whereas if you are just touring um sometimes you might have to do some of those things uh, specifically selling your tickets but you don't have to do all of them when you show up for the show you just show up you know and play. And that's great. But if it's a meetup with tickets, I feel like that sets a different expectations. My goal for these type of things is really community engagement and trying to give back and just hang out. I think that in my place, I'm a much smaller, like I have a following, but it's much smaller than someone that's well-established. And I feel like for me, it's important to nurture that and, and make sure that the people that are supporting me are you know getting really unique stuff that they wouldn't get from someone that's at you know on massive festival stages sure sure you you also in addition to events you talked about i'm sorry in addition to meetups you mentioned events what sort of events were you referencing uh so in the past i've worked with um an example of a corporate event that i've done has been something where uh because i've on youtube i was involved pretty uh how do I put this uh, on YouTube? I was pretty much the Minecraft musician for a good year, good amount of years in terms <laughs> of like YouTube content. If you search like Minecraft let's play and you look at any video that's up from like 2011 to 2015, most of the time it probably has my music in it. Um, same thing with like Minecraft time lapses. Um, so I sort of became associated with Minecraft as a brand. And obviously, you know, I didn't know at that point in time that it would become basically the biggest game in the world, but now it's that. And so Man, I think this was last year. I was invited out by the makers of Minecraft because I have a lot of friends over there. Uh, I think it's Mojang is the proper pronunciation, but I always call them Mojang. Uh, <laughs> but they're super cool people over there and they were having just a celebration for their company and they invited me out and I went to Sweden and sort of played for their like, I think it was their 10 year anniversary. And it was really fun. Um, and like, you know, I there was a stage, but the, it wasn't like, a show. It was kind of just me hanging out with my friends playing music. And that was really cool. And, you know, they were really nice. And, and it was something that was really unique. And I've done a couple of those, but like, it's, 
those types of events and then um conventions is a lot of things again <laughs> those don't really exist right now but right. you know back in the day i would sort of target a fair amount of like video game conventions so i've been to like e3 and pax uh, which is the penny arcade expo uh, here in the u.s uh, mm-hmm. as well as uh, minecon ironically enough um and i've played at a fair amount of those and sort of that's like a networking um, opportunity for me and also a way to sort of give the people that provide content or create the games a way to like let loose and also um, you know build your contact base yeah that's great I, I love those sorts of conventions I've been to Dragon Con a couple times which is oh, cool. uh, I, I describe as sort of a convention for anybody that doesn't fit mainstream they've got a little bit of everything but it's uh, sure. it's a blast so hopefully in the next year or two we'll be able to get back to those big conventions again you you mentioned the importance of diversifying your income as a musician. And one of the things as I was looking at this incredible back catalog you've got is that you've also got a lot of very cinematic pieces. Um, do you do any sync licensing? Uh, I've done a little bit. Uh, sync licensing is a, a separate beast, I think. And it really depends on like what you want to do and where you want to spend your time. Personally speaking, it's a big goal of mine at some point to push into that side of the industry. Cause I feel like when you write for sync, the payoffs can be very large depending, um, you know, think about some of the bands that have been on say Apple commercials, um, or any of the mm-hmm. music that you hear on an event, like the super bowl that's been written for the super bowl, but it's not like any, you know, real persons like it's not like someone released that on spotify someone wrote that for the event and um those types of things are are opportunities that are few and far between and i feel like that is something that as an artist either you have to be going 100 percent at that side of the industry to really make it big um or you have to work on it over time so i've i've basically taken the second option and i think over time you know i think that i'd like to do a lot more of that but I think it's, you know, from a producer standpoint, you got to look at what your skills are and you got to look at how most to leverage those skills to um, create a career for yourself because no one else is going to do it for you. So, you know, if you could produce music um, and you like cinematic stuff, yeah, the EDM crowd's probably not going to eat that up. But like, where else can you put that? So I've done a fair amount of like trailer music-esque stuff and you can find those influences in some of my songs. But like or some of my EDM releases rather, but you know, it's something that I have a passion for the cinematic stuff. Like I really, really, you know, growing up, I wanted to do music because half because of EDM and half because of like video games, uh, growing up, like listening to the halo music and, and hearing how music can be different and how different mediums can change music and how you can create epic sounds and emotions and stories from very simplistic uh, melodies and atmosphere. Uh, that's not something you can necessarily create with EDM. Um, or even like pop music, uh, it needs to be a little bit more straightforward, uh, in those genres, but I, I really would like to do more of that stuff. And it's stuff that, um, some of my fan base has lapped, latched onto in, um, in the past, but I do, you know, <laughs> the cinematic soundscapes releases were sort of just a, a labor of love, I think. And the sync licensing is a long-term goal. And I would suggest to anybody listening that, you investigate it, see if it works for you. I think that it's just the same as the normal industry. It's all about uh, building a contact base that has, um, you know, can find your music right place, right time kind of deal. And that's really like you build out as many songs as you can and start writing, keep writing. And then, you know, 
at some point you hope that it hits and you diversify by doing stuff in sync. You diversify by working with people. You diversify by releasing on Spotify. And I think that that's what's important from a business standpoint. Yeah. <laughs> Moving to a little more frivolous topic, you talked about video games. Do you have a favorite video game right now? Oh, man. So I don't have a lot of time to play these days, but I would say, man, over the last year or two, probably the most, the game I'm probably playing the most is Destiny, like Destiny 2. Yeah. Um, and that's probably because of like a lot of the Halo influences in that. Um, mm-hmm. and And the music is just fantastic. Yeah, it's it's amazing some of these blockbuster video games, the mm-hmm. the soundtracks that accompany them. Yeah, I agree, and it's really impressive, man. I and it, what's interesting to me too is you're seeing a lot of artists that, even if they made it big back in the day, are starting to get into the other sides of the industry, writing for film or you know doing video game soundtracks and stuff like that. It's really cool. Yeah, yeah, and and, and honestly, even if you don't have time to. Um, pursue those industry contacts for stink, sync licensing. There's lots of middlemen that can help with that. You know, um, even on this podcast, we I had Danny Felt uh, recently who does that. Um, by the time this interview comes out, I'm going to have Zach Jablow, who is with Brain Candy Management. They do sync licensing, and you know, you know, they take a split of it. But you know, you don't have to do the additional legwork. You let somebody else do it for you, so you can focus on what you enjoy. Yeah, I mean, that sounds that sounds Good. I, I when you when you look at yourself as a producer, you have to like do it half as a creative. We've been talking a lot about that, but half as a business, and that's what this is about. Mm-hmm. And I feel like like all those people you mentioned are are you know really killing it in in that side of the industry. And I feel like that's that's just like something that's important from a you know an artist standpoint is you know figure out how many places you can have that are generating you income over time and then you know if one takes off pursue that yeah. um and that's really exciting man i'm i'm excited to hear those episodes yeah i'll uh, make sure you get links to them i i really appreciate your time today um what are your plans in 2021 yes yeah, so uh basically my plan this year is starting in february i'm releasing a remix and an original every month um, and so that's the big focus on releases. Uh, and I'm also doing streams weekly on Twitch music production every Wednesday at 12 PM Eastern U S time and DJ streams every Friday at 5 PM Eastern U S time. Yeah. I'm just, uh, really excited. I'm, I'm pushing hard on the online stuff and, um, I'm probably looking to expand in for more business opportunities and looking for, you know, whether it be sync stuff or uh, side projects and stuff like that is just um, just cool projects. And I think that's from, you know, me sitting in the chair, but that from an approach Nirvana standpoint, um, I'm excited because uh, this year is going to be a big focus on the online for me um, as it has in the past, but like getting more specific about structure and making sure that, you know, I have releases every single month um, and that the fans are enjoying it. So that's really my priority. It's fantastic. Um, and where can people that, that haven't heard of you before, where can people find you online? Sure. So uh, obviously you could just search my artist name on Spotify. That's approaching Nirvana two words um, or any other uh, digital distribution store. Um, and if you want to see the streams, it's twitch.tv slash approach Nirvana. And my YouTube channel is youtube.com slash approaching Nirvana. Okay. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time, Andrew. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Here are some of my key takeaways. First, 
Andrew talked a lot about how he's been such a prolific producer, and he mentioned several ideas with the same end state to maximize the amount of time you spend in flow state being creative in your studio. One of those is using separate templates organized by genre. These don't have to be terribly complicated. In fact, I was a little surprised his template sounded somewhat sparse compared to other producers' templates. Use your templates to take care of things ahead of time that get in the way of your creativity. He also shared an idea for working backwards, creating a song shell from your existing tracks to give you an even more detailed framework for creating future songs. Second, having a consistent structure is key. You have to schedule time to be creative and a separate time for business and administrative functions. We've heard this concept multiple times before on this podcast from previous guests, including recently Zach Jablow in episode 60 when he talked about time blocking. One of Andrew's other secrets is just spending a lot of time in the studio. As he puts it, you should always be creating. Andrew has chosen to prioritize student time over touring, so he provides a clear example that you don't have to tour to be a successful independent artist if you don't want to. Third, he recommended a service called Vocalizer for finding vocalists and advised caution using vocal sample packs, even ones that are labeled copyright-free, because even if you have the right to use them, some other producer may have used the same vocal sample and then opted in for sync monetization on YouTube, even though they shouldn't. And that could trigger a copyright claim, which is just a headache. My distributor, CD Baby, for example, specifically says you shouldn't opt in for YouTube sync monetization if you're using samples for precisely this reason. Fourth, look for problems to solve with your music business. In Andrew's case, his early success was driven by solving the copyright problem for YouTube content creators by offering a large catalog of copyright-free music they could use. What's an issue that you could solve in your community? Maybe people need help setting up their live streaming during a pandemic, and you know how to do that. That's a problem you could solve. Or maybe there's no music scene in your favorite genre. That could be a problem you could solve, like Lauren Hardy did back in episodes 3 and 4 with Bass Night Orlando. Just... Keep your eyes open for problems and realize that each problem could, in fact, be an opportunity in disguise. Finally, Andrew mentioned that he's moving away from album releases because he's found that so many of the tracks from a large album get buried on Spotify unless you've got a huge ad budget, which most of us don't. The reality is that Spotify's algorithm, like most online platforms these days, rewards people for regular quality content. So if you're trying to build your numbers on Spotify, you should focus on frequent releases, perhaps shooting for a single each month rather than an album each year. Hey, if you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with a friend and leave a rating and review wherever you're listening. I'll have links for you in the show notes. Just head over to ProducerLifePodcast.com and look for episode 61. I'm going to wrap up this episode with one of my favorite tracks from Andrew's recent Isolated Frequencies album. It's called Perlescent. It's also on his playlist of copyright-free music that you can use for your Twitch or YouTube video as long as you give him credit. Until next week, this is the House Ninja reminding you to be somebody's hero today.